Welcome to episode 30 of 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and today I'm talking to Kevin Wang, founder and CEO of FASA, about understanding your open source code. FASA helps handle compliance for modern developers without slowing down the development process, and has plans to begin focusing on quality and security as well. I met Kevin about a year or so ago through a mutual friend who went through the Peter Thiel Fellowship with him and was so impressed by his maturity and vision for products. He's got a great story to share about his unconventional approach to entrepreneurship, and I'm so excited for y'all to take a listen. Kevin, thank you so much for being on my show today. I'm so excited to have you. Thanks so much, Christina. I appreciate it. Um, so start by telling us about FASA and what it is. Cool. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, FASA was born out of this kind of, you know, realization that uh, software development's changed a lot. So um, I like to think of software development, maybe if you, you know, rewind 10 years, kind of like making a watch. So you'd have this team in-house and you'd build this like big sealed proprietary application you then ship out to a bunch of your users. Um, but today, making software is kind of like, you know, collaborative Lego assembly. So we're at this place where if you look at uh, any modern application, 90% of the code inside of it isn't yours anymore. It's from third-party developers, open-source code bases, uh, contributors from all across the world. Um, and really, we're at this place where, you know, companies spend billions of dollars every year to make sure that their software development processes you know, legal, secure, high quality. Um, but the code that they're shipping to your users isn't theirs anymore. And understanding where it comes from is really hard. Uh, you know, things like, okay, who owns the copyright to all this code that we're shipping out to our users? Uh, you know, uh, what are the licenses in terms of use? Uh, how you can comply? And beyond just the legal stuff, you know, can you even trust this code? Uh, is it high quality? Is it bringing in potential security vulnerabilities? And so today, the answer to that process is this, in a slow, manual, discrete auditing process where you bring lawyers, you have your engineers manually look through your software builds and try to figure out what the heck is going to my users. And so we basically built a platform that sits on top of your development process and automatically tracks all the open source and third-party code that goes inside of it. Uh, and then from there, we can scan for all these different sorts of issues that you can bring in, for instance, licensing and you know, legal vulnerability, mm-hmm. security vulnerabilities, code quality issues. Um, today, we've you know shipped a product just around the compliance piece of it, so automated compliance inside of your developer workflow, uh, but soon we're going to have a solution for security, code quality, and more. So I think that's really interesting, especially since I come from an open source background. I think you know we had some of those questions from our clients, especially in the enterprise. And so do you find that enterprises are your main customer, or are they kind of across the gambit? So, you know... Um, uh, we're solving a problem that's pretty core to uh, most software development today. Uh, I noticed that you you had a background at uh, at Ionic Framework, mm-hmm. um, and there's there's a little bit of connection there that I can you know mention a little later. But um, basically, we see a couple types of clients. Uh, obviously, the big enterprises care a lot about legal security. They have these big budgets for these sorts of things. Um, so we have, you know, a bunch of great customers. I think two that I can talk about are like uh, the uh, Smart Things and, uh, and Solar City uh, that live sort of in the enterprise realm. Um, and so we do see a lot of people, you know, come to us that are part of big enterprise and they're like, OK, we need a solution to kind of solve this big uh, set of risks that we have. But on the flip side, too, um, you know, managing what goes inside of your code and what you're shipping to your users is a pretty general problem throughout the realm of, you know, just all software development, open source mm-hmm. in general. 
Um, and so what we did was we, you know, we have basically two free products out. Uh, one of them is a site called TLDR Legal uh, that helps developers understand open source licenses better. It basically takes an average open source license uh, and tells you what you can, cannot, and must do uh, under it. And then uh, on the flip side, we have, uh, you know, our product FASA. Um, is also the only free product in existence out there. It's the only product that you can actually get started on your own in 60 seconds without having to talk to a sales and onboarding team. And because of that, we've seen a lot of uptake in the open source community as well. So along with, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, open source projects like Ionic, there's, you know, uh, projects like Webpack, ESLint, um, like all those sorts of things, Grunt. Uh, so chances are if you're building, um, software today, especially inside a web, you're probably using something that's adopted FOSA at this point. Um, so we've seen a lot of great uptake inside the open source community, and we've seen some good uptake inside the enterprise space as well. Great. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's a really interesting opportunity. And you mentioned something that I, you know, last time we met in San Francisco, you were working on TLDR Legal. So I'd love to hear about the transition um, from that company to the opportunity you saw with FOSA to kind of switch gears. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, TLDR Legal was a um, it was a sort of pet project of mine that got me really interested in uh, this space. So the problem we were solving with TLDR Legal is uh, TLDR Legal never really had a business model behind it. It was much more so, oh, hey, this would be like great resource for the open source community. Let's just try to get it bigger. Um, and it was basically like a content site um, to help developers understand software licenses. And it got to a point where we were getting, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people looking at it uh, every few months. And, um, and we're trying to figure out, okay, well, what is, uh, you know, what does this mean for us, right? Um, and it kind of led me to this place where, okay, well, if developers at these companies are having so, much pro- uh, so many problems understanding uh, open source licenses, uh, what does that mean for their company as a whole? Right. Mm-hmm. If they're using these open source modules, they don't really know the licensing implications under, uh, 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 beneath it. Um, then what kind of risk is it generating for a big organization that has a big legal team that cares a lot about this stuff? Mm-hmm. And so after, you know, um, a bunch of interviews with like CTOs of public companies, CIOs, VPs of engineering, uh, general counsels, uh, we really found that. Uh, the bigger problem underneath this is that companies don't really have a good handle on what they're shipping to your users, which is insane, right? You think about a really sophisticated engineering team inside of a big Fortune 500 company, um, and you'd assume that they know what they're shipping to their users, they know what they're bringing in, they spend all this money making sure that their whole software development process is you know, legal and secure. Um, we found that companies don't really have a good handle on the open source that they're using, and the open source that they're using is now 90% of the code that they're shipping to their users. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's a really interesting and unique opportunity. Um, and I, I'm excited to see, you know, the other products you mentioned that you're coming out with. So congratulations on your success thus far. Yeah, thanks. It's going to be an exciting couple of months ahead. Yeah, I bet. So let's switch gears and talk about you. So where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in the Chicago suburb. Um, oh, really? It this, uh, yes. Yeah, it was this little town called Vernon Hills. Um, I went to this... Uh, uh, intensive boarding school is like a three-year boarding school called Illinois Math and Science Academy in Aurora. Um, you had to actually take these SATs when you're a kid uh, to get in there. Um, and then I, you know, ended up working in the Merchandise Smart for a business incubator called TechStars for uh, uh, for a little bit before I came out here. So, how did you find out about that school, or, or how did your parents find out about that school? 
So, you know, um, is, there's kind of like a funny juxtaposition in my life and background. I think, you know, up until I was about 18, 19 years old, my entire existence was basically finely tuned and crafted by my tiger mom uh, to <laughs> be good at school and to go to college. Uh, and then, you know, somewhere I must have really screwed up because, you know, I ended up dropping out of Berkeley and starting this company instead. Um, but uh, basically my, you know, my parents invested a lot in my education when I was young. Uh, the first time I ever took an SAT was in fourth grade. Um, and so I was you know, pretty prepared when the actual test came around. Um, wow. and so my older brother ended up going to this intense school and, you know, basically my parents were searching for, you know, what's the best, hardest, most intense academic experience that we could possibly put these kids into. Okay. Toss the older brother in there. Older brother did great. Okay, great. Let now time to toss like the younger kid in there too. Um, and so I just I followed my brother's footsteps. Went to this really intense school. Um, super rewarding experience. It's a really weird school. Like every single, uh, it, it worked a lot like college. Uh, you would live there. You'd have classes four days a week. Um, you'd have one day where you could actually go do research at a university. Um, all the uh, you had courses there were honors level or AP or higher. Um, we had a ton of teachers on staff that were, you know, PhDs and college professor, uh, professors part-time too. Um, it was founded by Nobel laureate. So it was, you know, one of those like just super intensive math and science academies. And so what did your parents do for a living? So my, uh, my dad, um, started a few small businesses inside of America. So, so they were immigrants, um, first mm -hmm. generation, um, came over, uh, my mom was a doctor, oncologist, you know, specifically, and she worked as a, um, a researcher for Abbott for, uh, over 10 years. Um, and my dad came over, uh, and he was in the art business. So, uh, my whole dad's side of the family has a pretty long lineage with art. But when he immigrated to America, he, you know, had to make a living. So he, um, you know, started these, like a, a couple franchises of these Mrs. Fields cookie shops. Uh, and eventually I grew and grew and then, you know, he sold it off. Um, and then now he's back in the art business inside of China. And so it's funny to me, though, that your your parents, even though your dad was more creative, pushed math and science. Or, or was that kind of you wanting to be in this math and science focused school? Um, so... Uh, for me, it was kind of weird because I, I think my my passions were really, really far separated from academia for the majority of my life. Um, you know, my mom overall was much more involved in my education than my dad was. Um, uh, and, uh, um, you know, I got, got out of the nest pretty early. I went to boarding school when I was, you know, still in high school. So I left home pretty young. Uh, my dad moved to China for work. And so we kind of have a pretty distributed family. But when I was really young, my mom was like the main driver behind this investment in education. And she has a scientific mind, right? She's a doctor, mm -hmm. came from a science background. So, you know, very opinionated that the technical pieces are really important. And on top of that, because they're immigrants, you know, they're a little bit more uh, distance from, you know, arts and culture from, from an American perspective, even though my dad, you know, has this like big art background. Um, for yeah. me, though, I felt like I was kind of living this sort of dual life uh, where, you know, there was kind of school mode where, you know, I had to care about my grades and care about my academics and all those sorts of things. Um, and then I had uh, the sort of like nighttime coding mode. Um, and so that was kind of like the stuff I was really passionate about. So I started programming when I was about nine years old. Um, by 11, I already had a couple of like freelancing gigs and small businesses that I was running just 
you know, with a PayPal, my dad's computer and a few side projects that a few thousand users. Um, and that was really, you know, stuff that I never talked about at school, stuff that uh, I didn't even really share with my parents that much. It was just the things that would, you know, um, things I would just dedicate all my time and passion to afterwards. And it was mm-hmm. only until I discovered startups that I actually find a way to really like urge that. Um, you know, I did some research throughout high school. Uh, didn't feel the same as, you know, doing the pet projects that I was really passionate about. And once I finally got that um, uh, uh, job at Techstars, uh, I really saw, you know, hey, there's this opportunity to take what I'm super passionate about, take the skills that I've developed, you know, from like nine to 19 um, and really, uh, you know, put some sort of like a commercial or career driven piece behind it. So given your parents, especially your mom or so traditional career path, how did they react to the Peter Thiel fellowship that you won? Oh man. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it took a little while, uh, for them to come around because I think, you know, um, uh, this, you know, my, my family themselves, they, they have a pretty like binary mindset where, you know, there's only this one very strict path to success and that's through the system and you have to excel and you got to get straight A's and that was hammered in. Um, uh, and so basically it was kind of like a huge paradigm shift to see, oh, well, you can actually, you know, have this unconventional path and still get somewhere. Um, and so for my entire life, I think the model, uh, before like, you know, 18, 19 years old was either you get complete straight A's and 4.0 and you get a perfect score on the SAT and you go to the best college and then you kill it there, or you're going to end up a garbage man, right? It's like, it's like, <laughs> you're, you're the, it, like that, that was, that was a running Very joke. Of my family. Yeah. Uh, and like, and uh, like, it, it's sort of almost hard to communicate this because, you know, even though it sounds like this funny joke that you can laugh at, it was pushed in so deeply that um, it just felt so real. So, you know, if you ever got like an A minus B plus on something, you, you know, you feel this like terrible shame, like, oh, my God, my future is just evaporating. Right. So coming from that context, you know, going back and saying, hey, uh, I'm going to drop out of college. Right. Is basically saying we're going to take 20 years of parenting and 20 years of all these principles and go completely the other direction. So it was definitely a very big paradigm shift for my parents, a big paradigm shift for myself too. There are a couple of things that really helped though. Um, so, you know, I was uh, uh, part of this entrepreneurial program uh, called the Teal Fellowship. And it was, you know, uh, backed by this guy named Peter Teal, who's this, you know, well-known billionaire in California. He was one of the co-founders of PayPal. Um, and uh, and so um, taking that and putting that sort of name behind this program um, uh, that I was in that facilitated me in college, um, something that helped my parents a lot. Um, you know, I, I sort of made a deal with them saying, Hey, you know, after two years, if, you know, nothing happens, I'm just going to end up going back. And, you know, by the terms of the program, you can go back actually whenever you want. Uh, and it also came with a hundred thousand dollar grant, which, you know, gave me the financial stability to support myself. Um, and then, you know, within the span of that, you know, started the company year in, um, uh, raised some funding, got some traction behind it. And uh, that was really enough time to really get my parents comfortable with uh, where I was at. Mm-hmm. And so your your mom, you keep mentioning this tiger mom mentality, you know, that is kind of striving for perfection. How does that translate to your company culture when, you know, you're at an early stage startup and a lot of things we always used to say better done than perfect. 
Right. And so do you find yourself struggling with that now? Yeah. You, you, you know, I think, um, uh, I think one of the negative pieces of, you know, the, that, that perfectionist attitude is you end up with a lot of anxiety for details that might not necessarily matter. Um, and, you know, it's something that's kind of ironed into my brain, but I'm very aware of that bias. So it's, you know, um, so we're definitely able to still embody this fucking shipment mentality uh, because, you know, it's something that I'm mindful about and I don't really let it get too far in the way. But, you know, another thing is I was never, I was really not like the perfect, you know, Asian kid that was easy to raise inside of Tiger Mom uh, establishment. My brother was. My brother was like a perfect kid that always listened to directions, was very easy to parent. Uh, you know, it was, you know, quieter when growing up, um, yeah, had really no problems at school, like all those different sorts of things. For me, I like to rebel. So uh, <laughs> I feel like, you know, even now this, you know, I, I sort of have this almost anti-establishment attitude uh, where I, you know, um, where, where I think that was really grown from just being part of this like tiger mom experience when growing up. Um, so I think, you know, uh, just personally, um, there's still a little bit of that, I think, um, you know, like perfectionist anxiety that creeps into different parts of my life, different parts of my work. Um, I used to have nightmares when I was growing up about waking up and forgetting that I had a test and failing and screwing up my perfect grades. Um, and nowadays I have that maybe like once a year, it still actually happens, but it's like now like a once a year kind of nightmare. So, so, so it's still something that, you know, is a part of my life, but it's not really something that I think that gets too much into the way of work. It sounds like you, entrepreneurship has kind of always been there, but when did you really think about it as a viable career? And did you ever dream of being anything else, you know, when you were younger and you thought about what you would be when you grew up? You know, when I kind of like think back to the happiest moment of my life or the sort of aha moment, it was really um, like... 2 a.m. at 13 years old, you know, with my eyes glued to the computer, uh, you know, creating this product that a few thousand people were playing, having this own, you know, uh, community that was fostered behind it. And I, I think I, I characterized that moment as, I think, my fundamental motivation as a human being. And, and for me, um, entrepreneurship was something I think just very, very intuitive for me and only found out that. Uh, I only found out the name for startups kind of when I started going down that path already. Um, that, that's not to say, you know, I'm like I'm necessarily uh, born for startups or something like that. But instead, it was just sort of like as a kid, I sort of discovered how cool it was to really create something on your own. Um, how unsatisfying it was for me to really try to put too much, you know, structure and planning around, um, you know, what I want my career to look like, things like that. Um, I was never really attracted to this idea of, okay, well, here's this like big career growth path, singular company that you have to fight over. Um, instead, I just wanted to make stuff and I really wanted to build stuff. And I found startups as just like just perfect for doing that. And so, and so, yeah, it was just always something that I just naturally fell into. Uh, and then now this is sort of happening at a bigger scale and out here in San Francisco, um, you know, you have all these resources at your disposal, uh, especially coming from, you know, the, the Chicago tech scene. Um, and, and now that we, you know, have some money in the bank from investors and we have a great team, we have this product that's out there. Um, it, it, it's sort of the same thing. We're still just building this really cool thing. Uh, it's just changed at a different scale. So 
you know, you mentioned that with the Chicago scene. Is that why you felt compelled to move out to San Francisco or did you have to do that for part of the fellowship? So uh, I, I moved out of San Francisco before I actually uh, got in touch with the fellowship. Um, there's sort of a funny story there. I, I remember I first heard about the fellowship back when I was in high school, when one of my math teachers came up to me and said, hey, I heard about this new program. You know, it's $100,000 from the founder of PayPal to drop out of school. And I distinctly remember that my response to that was, huh, that sounds stupid, right? Because uh, my entire life back then, was it was just all school. I was like, well, why would anybody be stupid enough to leave school to do this thing? Sounds, sounds like a stupid opportunity. Completely, then completely forgot about that interaction until years later. I think it was like maybe three, four months into the fellowship when I just like, like something happened. That memory just resurfaced inside of my brain. I was like, oh, my God, wait, I, I said that. And um and, and so when it, when it came to Chicago, though, um, you know, I, what, as soon as I started working for Techstars, it's like a light bulb switch onto my head where it was like, okay, wait, this is, this is the startup lifestyle. This is amazing. I'm going to get as much out of it as I possibly can. So I sort of started my journey there by, um, uh, you know, uh, by basically trying to meet as many people in the Chicago tech scene as possible. So, mm-hmm. uh, so Techstars was this great epicenter. The Chicago tech scene is really small. So anybody that does anything with startup tech ends up going into uh, uh, going uh, to Techstars. And so I spent my entire salary there buying coffee for other people at this really expensive coffee shop uh, called Intelligentsia that was right next to our office. Um, and I ended up meeting about 300 people in the span of about three months and built up this huge mail chimp, uh, you know, mailing list of all the people I met. And on my last day out before I came to San Francisco, I emailed every single person and asked them to introduce me to as many people in Silicon Valley as possible. So I was moving out here from Berkeley to study computer science. Um, but, you know, the main reason why I wanted to come out here, because, you know, this is where it was at, the startups. Um, and that move ended up being this great thing for me because, uh, you know, I came out here and I ended up meeting so many people. I did a small fellowship at a venture capital firm. Uh, I got introduced to the Teal Fellowship through that. Um, and I just, you know, ended up just meeting a huge amount of people in the world of startups. Um, and so that was just a, that was a good Kickstarter, got me exposed to a lot of different ideas uh, and gave me a lot of opportunities. And what I ended up finding out here is that, you know, the Chicago tech scene was an awesome place for me to start, uh, me to start because it's a small, really intimate place. I was 16 uh, at the time. And so, um, you know, it, it's this place where it's excited enough about the fact that there's this tech scene there and it's nurturing enough. They actually gave, you know, a kid like me a shot, right? Like, you know, I would be able to go to different networking events, talk to people, get these meetings, learn about all these different sorts of things uh, and get taken somewhat seriously when I would pitch an idea and get some really, really good feedback. Um, and, and that was just like a great small intimate scene for me to be a part of. And then out here, this is kind of like a much bigger pond in San Francisco where the valuations are always multiplied. The amount of money flowing out is always multiplied. And it's kind of like, you know, the best place to be when I think you, you know, want to take your first, you know, real few swings at the bat. Do you think there are any downsides, though, to being there? Uh, in the Chicago tech scene? or uh, No, in, in, uh, San, in uh, Francisco. San Francisco. Well, it, yeah, I mean, it's definitely kind of like, um, uh, if I think about it, like, if you want to work in show business, you go to L.A., right? But LA, and you go to Hollywood. But I don't think there's a single person that's going to say that Hollywood is the always glitz and glam. There's no dark side to it. So I think mm-hmm. in the same um, same method, where wherever you have like this hugely competitive, hugely uh, concentrated set of resources, 
you're going to have a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of darker sides to that piece too. Um, I think in, you know, the Chicago scene, even though it was a lot uh, smaller, uh, it was also a lot more intimate. I think people were a lot more invested in each other's success. Um, in San Francisco out here, you get a lot of resources, a lot of people, a lot of great talent, but also you get a lot of noise. You get a lot of, you know, uh, you get a lot of people who are just, you know, extremely, extremely single-minded and focused on tech startups. Um, and in reality, actually, I think that, you know, really is not necessarily a bad thing. Like you're out here, you're trying to build a career. You're trying, everybody out here is trying to chase their dreams. Um, but it's very, I, I think, uh, very monolithic. So we're going to switch gears and end with a few fun questions. So sure. what is a startup that you are a really big advocate of? I think one of the things that we've been thinking a lot about is go to market. And um, we've been drawing a lot of inspiration from companies like Atlassian. Mm-hmm. Uh, on how they go to market, how they set their pricing, like what they do. But, you know, I, I don't want to answer it with like, oh, let's pick some big public company that a lot of people know about. I kind of want to um, answer it with like some slightly more obscure or surprising company. Um, I think... Well, it's supposed to be a startup. So Atlassian, I mean, you're getting to be pretty... Getting pretty big. Okay, let me... Yeah. I'm going to take a second. I'm going to take a second to have this. Um, one company that I've actually admired a lot is uh, Gusto it used to be Zen, uh, uh, yeah. used to be, uh, Zen Payroll, um, yeah. but I just think you know Gusto is uh, uh, doing a great job um, as a company. Uh, they have a product that just really works on autopilot. Um, they have a lot of details also just throughout the product that you know um, it, it solved this problem that is supposed to run the background, and along with that, you have a lot of these like problems with the product where. Um, you know, if the best product is a product that you engage with the least, then you start to have questions about, okay, well, you know, why, what, you know, why isn't this high churn? You know, what, like you start to get into those sorts of risks over there. Uh, and, and Gusto just does this great job to kind of build delightful experience around running payroll and keeping everything running on autopilot and, you know, keeping you updated as a business owner in the back end at a really, really great price point too. And so, um, you know, like I, I've grown to admire um, Gusto quite a bit as a company. Great. And then if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview and why? Oh, interesting. Um, if I could interview one founder. Um, well, well, for me, it's, it's usually, usually how I find who I want to talk to uh, comes out from, um, you know, if I'm trying to solve a specific problem at the company right now, I want to learn more about how somebody did it, and then I want to sit down and then I, and interview them about it. Uh, because I think really like the most relevant pieces that you usually dig from an interviewer when somebody's like going through something that's very very similar to what you're going through right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so typically, like uh, the the folks that I'm actually more interested in talking to now are less founders and even more so. Um, like uh, like employees at companies that were brought in at a very specific time and had a sort of specific thing they had to implement and figure it out. So the mm. types of folks that you know I've been talking to more recently and trying to get you know interviews with and everything have been you know uh, VPs at a company that have been there for quite a few years that were the original people to, for instance, set the pricing at something, or or you know the first folks that have you know done some of the marketing campaigns around it. Um, I like that. I think, think, you know, because it is a whole team building a company and not just the founders. Well, thank you so much for being on my show today, Kevin. It was great having you. 
yeah, thanks so much. And this is a, this is a really fun, uh, really fun talk. All right, and that's a wrap on this week's episode of 52 Founders. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for episode 31. Thank you.